Good morning, everybody. Today our scripture reading is from Matthew 3, 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I, tell t- for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, good morning. Are we good? Just straighten out my rug, or I'll be distracted the entire time. All right, um, so my name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. Glad you're here, because that means we get to do this again. Um, and uh, we're studying. The book of Matthew, we started, uh, I don't know, the first week of the year, and uh, we'll be going towards the last week of like three years from now, and um, it's fine. Where are we going, you know? Uh, what are we going to do? Um, and so I love this passage. Um, maybe you're reading it and you're like, ah, you like that passage? I really do. There's some amazingly hopeful, beautiful stuff in here um, that um, maybe you haven't seen, maybe you have. Uh, and so... I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about snakes and fruit and axes and fire and rocks. It's going to be fun. And then uh, I'll try to give you some context and a bit of a plot and catch you up. If you weren't here the last few weeks, please try to catch up. We had one week where we did not podcast simply because the file was corrupt or something, and it just wouldn't go anywhere. We're like, fly, little bird, and it just wouldn't fly. So sorry, you got to be here. Um, And uh, yeah, let's pray. Shall we? Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for, uh, for what you are doing here um, in this room with these people. Thank you for um, awakening us to, to love and grace and to new things that you have for us, um, leading us uh, down the path that you have for us. Uh, I, I ask now that you would grant us peace, presence of mind, let us be here, nowhere else. Let us um, understand that this is a, a beautiful, glorious time where we, where we can come together and sit and discuss these ancient, beautiful, divine, heavenly things and ponder the weight of them and the meaning of them and, and what they mean for us in our modern context. Um, reveal to us some, uh, some things we need to see. Uh, may, we, may we feel uh, loved. May we feel... Um, covered in grace. Um, may we feel equipped for what you have for us. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Uh, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So uh, John the Baptist, getting brutal, saying some things to some people that um, sound on the face of them really harsh and unkind, and there's a reason for this. And we're going to talk about that. So let's set the, let's set the plot here. They're at the River Jordan, um, away from the city. If you were here last week, you remember, John shows up as this prophet, the first prophet uh, 
in about 400 years. And just to make sure that everyone understood that he was a prophet, he dressed like one, and he ate like one, and he spoke like one, and he didn't enter into the city. He didn't, go to the, he didn't teach in the synagogue. He didn't teach in the temple. He was out in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan River. In other words, out of the promised land, because he was here to tell them, um, your religion has failed. God is no longer in this. You don't have a center anymore. Uh, it is collapsing you are being sort of swallowed up into the Roman Empire and the culture, and this soon will be no more. So I'm asking you to come out of the city, come to the River Jordan, and we can be baptized and start over again. Um, there is, um, God is coming back, and he's going to reveal himself in a new way. And what this looks like is going to be different, and we're going to start over, and we're going to enter back into the city in this whole new way. So um, all these people are, are fleeing from the city, and they're running down... Um, to out to the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, um, land owned by nobody, and they're meeting John, the prophet there, to be baptized. Now, um, he mentions that uh, the previous verse, let me read it. Uh, I'm going to be there. So the previous verse basically says, and John looked up and he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming down to the river to be baptized. In order to understand what's going on here and why he says what he says, we have to understand who they were. So the Pharisees were a... Um, and unofficial, the unofficial leaders of Judaism. There is nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, where these guys are instructed that they should exist or how they should operate or any of it. Um, and so they're sort of these like well-educated um, people who rose up and, and invented new ways of, of, of being Jewish new ways of worshiping God, they invented this thing called the synagogue. This is what the inside of an ancient synagogue would look like. Now, people get confused between a temple and a synagogue. They tend to read the same thing. They, they, modern day, you know, we read it and we say, Jesus went to the synagogue or Jesus went to the temple, and we have the same picture in our mind. The synagogue is not the temple. The temple um, is a quote-unquote biblical ancient thing. It, it's from scriptures. There's Levitical priests. They're from a particular family line, and they have traditions, and they work in the temple, and you go to the temple, and they offer sacrifices, and they basically reconcile you with God. That's their job, and it's laid out in scriptures. Um, the synagogue is not mentioned in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures at all, um, because it was a thing that the Pharisees invented. It was a, uh, a sort of a, a, a Sunday school, if you would, but, like, so, but they were teaching every day. The people would gather, and they would sit around the edges of the synagogue room, and there, were some ta- there was a table with some scrolls, and the Pharisees would pick up the scrolls and open them up, and they would read them. And then the people would take turns debating, what does this mean? How does this apply to us? Why was this written? What was in the mind of the original writer? How can this be, misinterp- how can this be interpreted? How many different ways can we interpret this? And they had different methods. How deep could this go? How far could we take this? How wide can this be? Can this be for everybody, or is it just for us? So they had all these ways of interpreting this. Um, so this is the room you picture when you read the story of Jesus uh, when he's young, 12, 13, um, and he's traveling with his parents for Passover, and he goes, it says he went to the synagogue, and he opened up the scroll. He goes to the table, he opens up the scroll, and he reads uh, one of the prophets, and then he, and he rolls it up, and he puts it down, and he stands up in the middle, and he says, the words of this prophet have been fulfilled today in your hearing, like just now, and he sits down. And like you could hear probably a pin drop followed by angry screaming and debate about all of this. And they would, they would 
teach these things, and then it would break off into groups of two or three, and they would debate the meaning of this. And, and the, the Jewish people believed that God was in that. In fact, there's a piece of scripture that affirms this. It says, when you are gathered in groups of two or three in my name, I am there among you, helping you to understand the scriptures. I am present. That's what this is talking about. The Jewish people breaking off in groups of two and three, debating the meaning of scriptures. Um, so this is where the Pharisees worked. Um, and equivalent to them today, the unofficial leaders of Judaism would be sort of evangelical leaders if, because we are a part of an evangelical denomination, but evangelical leaders, it's not, there's all these different groups of Christianity. Christendom is very wide. And none of these groups are necessarily biblical in the sense that they're not, none of them are ordained by scriptures um, to exist, but they are people who become educated and most Christians live in a world where they are not educating themselves all day long on these things. And so we sort of outsource our sort of intelligence and trust and study to these people and we learn from them. We allow them to tell us. Um, all of that's fine, but it, 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 it causes us to have leadership and people in very powerful places who can basically make voices and break voices, right, at, at, the, at, at a Facebook post or a tweet, right? Um, and so very, very powerful people. Um, and this is who these guys were, okay? Now, um, the Sadducees were sort of like Pharisees with doctrinal differences and the fact that they were very, very rich. They were the elite aristocracy sort of of the, the Jewish religion, they, um, they had some beliefs that were slightly different. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They took the, they took the Old Testament scriptures very, um, very face valued. They didn't debate. They didn't spend time really in the synagogues often and debate things. They would read it and they would do what it says. In other words, they were sort of like the, the fundamentalists of the group, if you would. Um, but they had beliefs that were very different from the Pharisees in the sense that they didn't believe in the afterlife because it's not, in the Old Testament, it's not a thing that's really focused on. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in resurrection. Um, they, didn't, um, they didn't believe you could reinterpret scriptures. And basically, they had sort of joined forces with the Roman Empire. So they are the ones that had taken Judaism and melded it with the Roman Empire and created what they had. Um, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the unofficial yet incredibly powerful rulers of Judaism at the time. Um, every generation has these. And these were theirs. And when you back up two verses, you read something really interesting that I pointed out last week. It says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, to John the Baptist, in the desert. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so the Pharisees go to work one day in the synagogue. And nobody's there. And the Sadducees go into the temple square, and nobody's there. And they're wondering where the people are. Like, in my head, I have that John Travolta Pulp Fiction gif where he walks and he's like, <laughs> like, where? I'm confused. Where is everybody? They're in the desert. They've left the city, Jerusalem, Judea, surrounding cities. They're, they're down there in the desert listening to this prophet speak about how this whole thing is collapsing, it's falling apart. We're going to start over. God is coming back in a whole new way, and we're going to follow God as he reveals himself. And in the very next passage, Jesus comes into the picture. Um, and so these guys realize at some point, in some level, we're in trouble. You ever realize like culture, like something, whatever culture it is, or whatever has moved on without you, and you're there, and you're stuck? Like 
late 90s, like 99, still wearing Jinkos. Like, everyone's moved on. Google it. Big pants. Um, I, was, I, I almost threw up a picture of me. Almost did. Listening to Operation Ivy wearing giant pants. All right. Um, now, uh, oh, way off track. All right, focus, focus. I just had a song in my head. Um, so nobody's there. And so what are you going to do? You're like, well, we're about to become very irrelevant. What this prophet is saying is actually happening. This thing is collapsing. We've got to go join them. Um, and so we come to our passage. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Okay, so are you with me with the plot here? They're like, um, I'm going to go join them because I want a job next week. I'm leaving. I'm going out to the river to be baptized. John sees them coming. And for the next about eight or ten verses, John starts speaking in, in farmer language. Um, he uses about four or five different farmer metaphors, which are brilliant. And this is the first of them. Um, and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, what he has, the picture John has in his head is a field that is on fire. So we have a wheat field and it's on fire. And this would be done um, most likely by a farmer who is clearing a field to plant something new. There's several reasons why an ancient farmer would burn his field and a modern farmer would burn the field. First off, it's really good for the field. Oftentimes, all the carbon, all of that. Second, there's some reason that he can't plant as it is. And he's got to purge that. Maybe it's weeds. Great way to kill weeds? With fire. Um, maybe it's like rodents, rats. Maybe it's snakes. Maybe you can't go into your field because one of the very poisonous Middle Eastern vipers is in your field, or maybe a bunch of them, and they're all there. And so whatever it is you want to do, you want to plant something, but you can't because there's vipers in your field. So you set your field on fire, and as the fire spreads, the vipers, the scorpions, the rodents, all of it flees from the fire. So now, picture what John is saying. Everyone's down at the river with him, and these people come traveling through the desert, and he sees them coming for a long way. He's like, ah, it's starting. The shepherd has set the field on fire. Here come the snakes. And once the snakes are all out of the fire, the, uh, the shepherd, the farmer, once the snakes are all out of, the, out of the field, the farmer can finally start building something and, and, and planting something which will grow and nourish the world. And so it's this beautiful picture of God as a farmer clearing the bad stuff out of the field because what he's about to do is plant something new that will feed and nourish his people and the world around him. Um, and so um, this is sort of the picture that John paints for us here. What I instantly had in my mind when I was, when I was reading this is this picture here. All right. Uh, if you know what this is, okay. There's this guy, Ismay, for the people on the podcast who should be at church. Um, <laughs> there's this guy, Ismay, and he was a real person. He designed the Titanic um, and he spent the entire voyage bragging about how strong it was and fast it was and big and amazing and spared no expense. And he, uh, as the ship is sinking and going down um, and people are plunging into the water to their certain death, he climbs into the lifeboat. The, the, the main guy responsible for running the ship aground, true story, survives the sinking of the Titanic. Even the captain went down with the ship but the guy who actually is responsible for all of it. Um, there's this scene where he's climbing into the boat 
and it's going down, and Celine Dion is not singing yet, and it's going down, um, and there's this guy who's like getting women and children in the boat, and he looks around, he's like, this is the last lifeboat, and he looks around, and he like jumps in, like, I don't know if you grabbed a baby, I don't remember, and just sits down, um, and the guy, the guy letting the lifeboats down, who is doomed to die as, as one of the, you know, deckhands, I don't, I'm not a sailor, um, He's letting the boat down, and he looks around, and he realizes the designer of the boat is sitting there in the lifeboat, and he's kind of looking away, and the guy's like right here, and he's like looking away. He's like, uh, don't look at me, don't look at me. And the guy just glares at him with this look like, <laughs> yeah, let it down, let the boat down, um, and flip it over. Um, but basically, he lets him down, and the guy lives, okay? The look that he receives is the look that I picture John giving these guys. The guys who ran this whole ship aground, they destroyed what God was doing. Israel existed to be God's people who were a blessing to the nations around them. And here the spiritual leaders were who had mixed everything up and the whole thing is collapsing and the prophet is in the wilderness and he's speaking about the new savior, the Messiah who's coming. And these guys are like, well, we're going to start over. We want to survive, right? So we're going to move in and we're going to, we're going to jump in a lifeboat and we're going to be baptized and so John has some words for them. And so first thing he does is he calls them out on it. Oh, you noticed, first off, did you? You noticed that the farmer is wiping the field clean. And you've run from the judgment of all of that. And you want to be part of this new thing, right? You, you want a future in this. And so he has some words for him. And the first thing he says is this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So the first thing we need to do is explain the Abraham thing. Um, there was this belief that Abraham was so holy and so righteous and so good and sort of so much favor and blessing with God that if you were a descendant of Abraham, then you were always um, in the blessings of God. There's no way. You can do whatever you want. You could never exhaust it because Abraham was so holy and his blood is now running through your veins. And so you were pure no matter what. Um, William Barclay writes it like this. He says, to, to the Jews, Abraham was unique. So unique was he in his goodness and in his favor with God that his merits suffice not only for himself, but for all of his descendants also. He had built up a treasury of merit, which not all the claims and needs of his descendants could ever exhaust. And John looks at them and says, you, you think you're safe because of the goodness sort of in your past and in your family lineage? He says, God is far more powerful than that. God made humans out of dust, and God can take these rocks, turn these rocks into dust, and then turn this dust into children of Abraham. He says, God can create life anywhere he wants. What makes you feel that you are so special? God can make another one of you out of this rock right here, right? This is John. That's how he's talking, and, and he's, he's sort of He's being brutal. Um, and then we get to the next part, a little more farm talk here. He says, even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So he's talking about repentance. He's talking about bearing fruit, actions, living in a way that God has for us to live. And so he uses this other farm metaphor of if the farmer is, after he sort of burns everything out, um, if, there is, if he's planting an orchard and there's some trees that aren't bearing fruit, maybe they're dead, maybe they're diseased, whatever they are, the axe is sitting there ready and they're all being cut down. Is this you? Are you going to be cut down? Or are you going to be part of what God is doing? Um, because all of the useless things, just like the burning of the field, 
will be pulled out so that what God is doing can be good and bear fruit and nourish and feed the nations. Now, um, so we have this. Remember, this is very in keeping with his previous sort of the, with the, the, the last week's sermon about how John was sort of there to tell them, hey, God is not in what you're doing. All of this is coming down. All of this is failing. But there's good news because God is coming back um, and we're going to start this over. So all of this goes perfectly with how he looks, how he's dressing, how he's talking. It all flows together. It all makes sense. And then he has this passage. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to break it apart into little pieces and talk about it. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, first thing, what is he talking about? This is more farmer talk, of course. Um, he is describing wheat threshing. So, very hard to find a picture of, a, of, a, of a, a wheat threshing circle. I think, I mean, this is an ancient one. It's not a Middle Eastern one. I think it's more of a Scottish one. It's got a little more like flair, right? Um, but it's just a giant circle of stones with like a step around it. And basically, you would bring all the wheat in from the field. You'd put it in a big pile. You'd take the fan or the threshing fork or whatever, and you'd stick it in the ground. You'd stick it in the pile, and you'd throw it up in the air really high. And on, especially on a windy day, all the chaff, the useless stuff that if you ate is not good for you, um, all that stuff sort of flies to the edge, and the wheat is heavy, and it separates while you're tossing it, and it falls down. And around the edge, up on the step and on the ground, is going to be this sort of gathering of, of chaff that comes out of the wheat. And eventually, that stuff piles up, and, and it starts working its way in to crowd the space where you're threshing the wheat. And it, there's a danger that it'll start mixing in again. And so someone else comes along, and they gather up all the chaff. They put it in a, in a, on a wheelbarrow of some sort, and they take it down to the burn pile, and they throw it in the burn pile, and, and there it burns. Uh, so the burn pile, um, this brings us to the next thing I need to pull out of this. Um, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the Greek word for unquenchable fire is asbestos, literally what it's called, which I sat and pondered the irony of that for a while, because we call a different thing asbestos, which actually is unburnable. So who knows what we were doing? Um, but we use, we, we use this word today to describe a thing which does not burn. Um, I used to live on Hannah ha- Avenue over here, and I had this like 1926 bungalow, and the sides of it were covered in um, what looked like wood sort of tile, but it was actually concrete asbestos tiles. It was a big fad in the 60s, and I'm sure the owners of our house were very stylish. And so they covered the sides of the beautiful wood on the side of the bungalow with this stuff. It was called concrete asbestos tiling, so it was called concrete, but it wasn't concrete. It was made of asbestos and made to look like wood. So it's just a big lie that covers your house. (laughs) And there was a woodpecker, and every morning he would fly from the palm tree that he lived in. It was killing our palm tree, by the way. He'd fly over to the house, grab onto the side of the house, and he'd start banging on the concrete asbestos tile. And I'd wake up in the morning, I'm like, ugh. And it's one of those big ones. So you can't, like, shoo them away. That's illegal, right? Wherever they live, they live. And, And then one day I just started laughing, because I realized, I was like laughing, and so I was like, what are you laughing at? And I was like, that's asbestos. The joke's on him. <laughs> and eventually, the, he was gone. Um, so, I'm sorry. 
unquenchable. This is the Greek word asbestos. It means always burning. This word is used several different places in Scripture, and it refers to the same thing. Um, it's used here in, uh, in, in Mark 9.43. It says, go to Gehenna, to the fire which cannot be put out. The word there, the Greek word is asbestos, used again. Um, there was this, Gehenna is a burn pile right outside the city of Jerusalem, where anything that was useless now to the society. They used everything over and over and over until there was no use left in it. They didn't create much garbage back then, not like we do. And they would take these extra things that were absolutely useless and they would take them to the pile and throw them in and they would burn. And the fire burned day, night. Um, people who were poor, who couldn't afford like grave sites or, or prisoners, um, after they died, their bodies would be burned there. And so there would be people crying there. Oftentimes it was, it was a sad place. Um, you would throw... Um, anything that was basically useless there. And so what we have is a picture. Uh, He says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather up his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So it's going to be tossed out. There's no use for it. The big message is there's no use for it. That's what the first century audience is hearing when he says this. Um, And then there's one more thing you need to glean from this passage to put the entire meaning together. And it looks like this. He says, if you back up a little bit, He says, uh, he will baptize you. He says, there's someone coming. It's the Messiah. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about spirit. Um, The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma in scriptures. And it can be translated as spirit. Also, it is the same word that's used for um, breath. It's also the same word that's used for wind. So this completes the picture, right? So we have a farmer tossing the wheat up into the air, the wind separates, it's gathered up, thrown in the fire, the unquenchable fire, the burn pit um, in Gehenna. Um, and so here we basically, and he, says, and he says the holy wind, right? So first century reader, he will baptize you with holy wind and with fire. So that the idea that God, the idea here is that God is going to cleanse you. God is going to take you who's come to this river to be baptized you need to repent. You need to change your life. Um, I'm going to baptize you with water. But after this, the Holy Spirit is going to do his work and make your life holy. And it's a long process and you will be tossed and tossed and tossed. And slowly God will remove the things from you and your life that should not be there, that are of no use to the kingdom of God. And what will be left is, is the wheat and the chaff will be taken away and disposed of, and what is left is the wheat. Now, this is an incredibly beautiful picture because what's happening here is they're coming down to the river, and the vast majority of us seeing this, whoever it is that has wrecked the ship of whatever it is that we're a part of, they come down to the river and they say, I want to be a part of this. You're going to say, no. Remember what you did? John looks at them. First thing he does is he rebukes the things that they did. He wants them to know how awful it was. Then he says, and I'm going to baptize you with water. So what just happened? He lets them in. He does not push them away. He says, we're going to, do, we're going to start over. If you want to be a part of this, there is some repentance to be done because you're not bearing fruit. You ran this entire ship aground, and now you're running. The only reason you're running is because the whole thing is collapsing now. And here you are standing with us, and you want to be a part of what God is doing. You want to repent It's done not with words, it's done with actions. You're going to repent, and I'm going to baptize you with water, and then the real work is going to begin 
because the Spirit of God, like wheat, is going to be removing the chaff from your life and taking away all of the things that are useless in the kingdom of God, all of the things that are awful, all of the things that, that caused the mess that we are in. And so there is rebuke, and then there is embrace. We tend to end our conversations today with people who um, commit atrocities of whatever kind, small, large, whatever. We, we, we're really good at rebuking. Um, and then we're really good at sort of, that's all, shutting it down, blocking, hanging up the phone, you know, unfriending, whatever it is. This is what we do, right? We don't want to see it. We, we tell them how it is and we push them away. That is not what, what should be happening in the kingdom of Jesus and that is represented here by the prophet who is preparing the way for Jesus because Jesus is entering into the story in the very next passage and the first thing that needs to happen is the people need to realize nobody is too far gone. No matter what they've done, when they come to us and they say, but I want to be a part of the divine thing that God is doing. It's fine to rebuke. It's healthy. John spends like the rest of the book, every time he's mentioned, he's rebuking people, basically. He eventually gets his head cut off for it. It's what he's doing. It's what he does. He rebukes people. But he always makes a space to welcome them in. He's always pointing them towards the better thing. He's always saying, what you did was wrong. Do you understand this? And if the answer is yes, then we can move forward. So there's like a boundary. And if you can admit this, then we can start patching things up and we can get healthy. And then you can join us and we can build this new thing. So there's two ways to look at people. You can look at people as in, oh man, look at all the chaff in their life, right? So much chaff in this person's life. Look at all of the things that they've done. Um, Or... As followers of Jesus, the way you are supposed to look at people is there is wheat in there. Yes, of course, we all have chaff. It's not helpful to run around pointing out everyone else's chaff. What is helpful is to run around pointing out everyone else's wheat. The fact that there are things inside of you that are redeemable, that are lovable, that God did give to you that is useful for something. And one of the works of the church One of the works of the body of Christ, one of the works of the kingdom of God is to toss you in the spirit of the wind, sort of let this fly away so that what we can find is the goodness of it all. That's that's what the church is about. That's what we should be about. But too often we spend our time pointing out chaff, 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 chaff. A lot of wheat, chaff, 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 right? That's how we do it. That's not what John does. There is this rebuke. Yes, there is chaff, but there's wheat in there. We're going to find it. The Spirit of God is going to do this. And all that chaff, you know what we're going to do with that? It's, going to, it's gone. It's going to disappear. We're going to burn it in the fire. It has no place. And see, one of the problems is um, we tend to look at people who have a very long sort of path of, of sort of bad choices. And they spend a long time doing really awful things. And they get, they get to where... They, 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 they don't want to live like that anymore. And they, they stand up and they say, I'm going to repent. I'm going to change. But we spend so much time on all of the things that they've done. We never actually let them repent. Um, 
there was, as we're standing at, at the river, okay, there was this conversation, there was these conversations that was happening in the first century that directly come into play here. The first thing that we need to think about is, is um, John tells them, it doesn't matter that you're descendants of Abraham. That doesn't save you. That doesn't fix this. There is some work to be done, some repentance to be done. We tend to read that, cultural, we move on. The first century audience of this book would hold on to that because it means something. Because there was prophets in the, in the Old Testament that spoke like this. There's this prophet Ezekiel who stood up and he said, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. The idea here is that no matter how much good you've done, no matter how much good you've done, sin always is destructive and sin always hurts. Um, and oftentimes... The more good you have done for somebody before you sinned against them, the more painful it is. Um, someone who leans out of the window and flicks me off while I'm driving down the road, it's not going to bother me that much. It might bother me a little, depending on how I'm feeling for the day. Um, but in the end, it's not, it's not a life-altering thing, all right? Um, a close friend who walks up and puts a finger in my face, that is more painful than anything. Um, a, a, a 50-year marriage that is interrupted, no matter, how, no matter how faithful the spouse has been, their entire history failing one time, you don't look at them and say, yeah, but 50 years, so I mean, like, still a good batting average. Like, that's not how it goes. It's incredibly painful, and it threatens everything because they have done so much good for you. And so there is this that's one of the things that John is saying to them. It doesn't matter how long you've been at this. It doesn't matter that this thing was good. Um, things that go bad, when they go bad, they're still bad even though they were good. We love to talk about how this was great at one point. This was great. Yeah, but now it's bad. So we can do away with it. And it's okay. It's actually biblical. It hurts. It still hurts just because it was good at one time. And then there's the opposite. In the first century, um, around the time of Christ, they're the idea of grace from the mouth of Jesus changed the conversation. And people started writing about this, and rabbis started talking about this. There's a, a contemporary of Jesus, um, Rabbi Simeon ben Tohai, and he writes this. He said, the, the picture here is beautiful. You've got to picture this. God's hand is stretched out under the wings of the heavenly chariot to snatch the penitent from the grasp of justice. So you, he, he paints this like sort of, it's three-tiered language. It's God in like a, a flying chariot, and there's people down there sort of reaching up and putting a hand up like, I'm repenting. And then God puts a hand under the chariot, just grabs them. Yep, you're in. Yes, you're in. Thank you. Yes, you're in. And it's sort of like, just ask. That's all. Because in the same way that sin always hurts, no matter how much good there has been, repentance and a long line of really bad decisions always lands you um, forgiveness, grace, mercy. Always. And instead of looking at it as you've done so much bad and this is the first good thing that you've done, instead of that, how about this? How about this is the first good thing in a long line of greatness coming your way? This is the first. This is, this is a new day 
on a, a new life that you are living, and it's good. In, instead of always looking back. Because the fact is, when we read the Bible, when we read about the things that God did, especially in the, the New Testament, the, the entirely new way that, 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 that Jesus is interacting with the world, um, we're looking back at things that God did, when in reality we should understand that we are looking, what we're looking at is not back at things that God did. We're looking at things that we will do. We are looking at the way God is making us to be. And so when we see people like John the Baptist welcoming these guys to be baptized instead of rejecting them outright, we shouldn't look at it like, wow, that was an incredibly great thing that he did. Man, God was gracious with them. No, God is gracious with me as, as I am in this story as well. God is gracious with me, and I'm going to be John the Baptist. I'm going to be Jesus. I'm going to be this. So we're not looking at God's past. We're looking at our future when we read the scriptures. That's what we should be looking at. Because in the end, this is where God is taking us. We are moving. We are following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you become more and more like Jesus. And so these loving acts are not just things that should amaze you. They are things which should inspire you for the day when you are there and you get to act this way. When you find yourself pouring yourself out for people around you and saying, oh man, the resurrection is true. The crucifixion is real. I'm bringing this person back like from whatever death is in their life by pouring myself out for them. I'm pouring out salvation upon them because God did this for me. And so as we follow Jesus, we walk with these people into renewal, into restoration. What John is practicing here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, dead, dead people, dead movement, dead positions, okay? Um, but what John is actually doing here is practicing resurrection, he is pre-telling the story of the gospel before Jesus even does. And then the life of Jesus affirms everything that is said before. So in the Old Testament, they're always looking forward to Jesus. And then here we are looking back to Jesus. Jesus is the center of it all. He's our past. He's our future. He's all of it. When people come to us, um, we look through the eyes of Christ. We don't see chaff, 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 throw them away. God doesn't throw people away. God doesn't throw people away. God sees the wheat in them and will bring it out of them. And we, as the hands and feet of Jesus, are, are some of the farmers here that are, that are supposed to do this work. So as you go throughout your week, you should be able to look and say, there's wheat in this person. Someone really is brutal against you. Look, there's wheat in this person, and, and we're going to find it. We're going to dig really deep because it's really deep in there, but we're going to find it, Right? But that's what it is. It's commitment to restoration, the reconciliation of all things to God. And so you're here today, and, and there is someone in your life who has run something aground. You have a spouse who ran the ship aground. You have um, a boss, a spiritual leader. You were hurt by a spiritual leader, whatever, and they just crash this thing. It's, they're sitting in a lifeboat with the face, and it's just going down, right? And you want to tell them off, and you want to run. You want to rebuke and just shut him down. Never see him again. That is not biblical. That is not how the followers of Jesus do it. We are resurrection people. We are different. Holy, in the original language, means different. We are different. We're living on a different place from a different life source than everyone else. We should be. And we should be living from grace. We are conduits of it. It pours through us, out to the people around us. And so we look out and we say... People are just talking about how terrible, awful someone is. You say, you know what, though? Like, 
Imagine if God got a hold of that. Like, what could they be? And by you striving after that, God is moving towards them. When you move towards them, God's moving towards them. The church are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the body of Christ in the absence of the physical presence of God. It is us. Uh, So we're going to take communion. Our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, We do this every single week um, because it is sort of the the centering of it all. It's sort of the recalibration of of all the instruments. Um, And it is um, a symbol of, of what Christ did for us on the cross. As he poured himself out for us so that we could be made whole. As he rose in the end, to show us new life and hope where we did not see hope before. And then he says, follow me. And he says, when you do this, this is how you remember me. You break bread, dip it in the wine. So there's two elements. There's bread, which is broken. Um, it symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. There's wine, which is the, uh, the blood of Christ, which is poured out for you. We take some time in prayer. We take some bread, we dip it in the wine, and we eat it. Everyone is welcome at the table. Um, I hope you recognize what this is. It's the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ spilled for you. No matter how holy or sinful you are, when you come to the table, we all receive the same thing. Body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ spilled for you. For your hope, for your resurrection, so that you can be made whole again. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. Give us hope. Give us a, a better view of people. Remind us that there is wheat in everyone. And uh, one of the things that you are here to do in this world is to find it and to pull it out of them and redeem them. Thank you that you don't throw us away, that you don't throw people away. Thank you. We love you. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.